What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? If you had all the money, all the time, all the knowledge, all the resources that you needed? What would you do with your life if you simply knew that anything was possible for you? My name is Christina Carlson, founder of Global Swedish Design and stationery brand Kiki K, and author of the book Your Dream Life Starts Here. And I love exploring these sorts of questions to inspire people to dream. Before I started Kiki K, I had a dream that I could bring Swedish design to the world to create beautiful products that bring sparks of joy into the everyday lives of millions. Now that I have achieved that dream, I want to help you dream big. I want to create a global movement to inspire 101 million dreamers to transform their lives and transform the world in return. Each episode, I'll be talking to some of the world's most inspiring people, exploring the powerful impact that dreaming has had on their lives. We'll be diving deep into the power of dreaming with real insights and ideas that you can use immediately to build a dream life of your own, whatever that means for you. Hello again and welcome to another episode, one I just know you're going to love. My guest this week is the incredible Kath Koschel, founder of The Kindness Factory, former professional cricketer and an Ironman competitor, and a truly inspiring woman to say the least. The challenges Kath has faced are beyond what most people could ever imagine, And yet, despite her unbelievable setbacks and struggles, her resilience has allowed her not only to overcome these challenges, but also see the good in the world when most others couldn't. Kath has defied all medical prognosis by teaching herself to walk on three separate occasions. And despite facing other serious personal, mental and physical setbacks, After all that, she founded the not-for-profit Kindness Factory in 2015 with the goal of encouraging and inspiring one million acts of kindness, inspiring the world to be kind and share their kindness. Just incredible. To date, she has raised close to a half a million dollars for various charity organizations and was the recipient of the 2016 Pride of Australia Medal for showing courage in the face of extreme adversity. In January 2017, Kath was awarded the Young Australian Medal and the People's Choice of Australia Award. In this super inspiring episode, you will hear all about Kath's remarkable journey, the challenges she has overcome, as well as a huge positive change she is spreading around the world, as well as how Kath chased her childhood dream of playing cricket for Australia, her strength, determination and resilience the sheer power of gratitude and expressing it, the benefits of really taking the time to recognize the people who has been there for you in your life, the amazing power and simplicity of kindness, the importance of paying forward the kindness you have been shown, that we should never underestimate what we are struggling with, we are all unique and things will all affect us differently. The importance of understanding your values and identifying the things you simply can't live without. The power of being authentically you and so, so much more. 
I could share Kat's story and speak all day on her incredible strength, but there is no one better to share her journey than Kat herself. So let's get right into it. Hi, Kath, and welcome to my podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I'm so excited. Your story is just extraordinary. But before we jump into all that, I would love to know, did you have a dream as a child in terms of did you want to become something or do you want to do something when you were growing up? Um, I did. And thankfully, I, I get to share my story all around the world and everything. And I always start by, I guess, going back to the age of eight. So I'm now a proud auntie. I've got five beautiful nephews, one beautiful niece. Um, and I've always found that eight's quite a curious age. So they always sort of used to ponder that question of what did you want to be when you were grow up, when you grew up? So when you were my age, when you were eight, what did you want to be? And I really didn't have to think too hard. I I've, I only ever had one dream and goal and wish and ambition, and that was to play cricket for Australia. So, growing up, I um, I've got three older brothers. So, I guess being a male-dominated sport and their love of the game, uh, they sort of passed that on to me. So, here I was, yeah, um, at a very ripe old age of eight, wanting to, to represent my country playing cricket. So, yeah, that was it for me. That was the pinnacle of life, of everything, and that's everything that I ever wanted to be or achieve. Your story is so incredibly inspiring and obviously also very touching and hard to listen to. I would love to hear your story. Yeah, I mean, maybe we can kick off at eight, like having and and knowing that we've just set up the conversation by me having this dream. Um, I'll preface that by saying that I guess I wasn't technically or for want of a better phrase, I wasn't naturally gifted um, as a cricket or even as an athlete. So um, I really had to grind, I guess, my way to success in the sport um, that I chose, which was cricket. So I had, you know, natural enough ability um, as a batter and a wicketkeeper when I was growing up and always loved to be active. So in and out of the swimming pool and all that kind of stuff. So I had um, I had that in me as, you know, want and desire to be active and all those sorts of things. But from a skill standpoint, really didn't match up to my peers in many different ways. But um, I don't know what it is about me and my personality and even my story now that's um, sort of allowed me to have this kind of grit that not a lot of people can say that they have. And I've only really just admitted that to myself at at the ripe old age of 33 that I've been able to overcome many big life hurdles. And I think that's because of a stubbornness that I have, which isn't necessarily always a good thing to be stubborn, but it has helped me in good stead in overcoming some of the many barriers that I have. But also, yeah, just this grit to to want to, um, I guess, represent, yeah, my, my country playing cricket. So for what I lacked in that skill and, and natural ability, I just had to make up for in hard work and training and all that kind of stuff. So I sort of went through my school age life, you know, doing okay at school and all that kind of stuff and trying to find my way outside of the classroom and onto any kind of sporting field that I could get myself on to get out of class and all that kind of stuff and made a few of the representative teams for New South Wales and so forth and really got to that I guess New South Wales the pinnacle um, for women's cricket in Australia and it was a hard team to crack through we had you know eight of our players playing for Australia when I was 18 and ready to, to take that step up to that um, senior level so it was always going to be a tough slog for me and I went to uni after school and, and started a degree in sport and exercise science and thankfully there were some English representatives or internationals playing in the city 
indie grade competition when I was about 18 and they came over and um, one of them asked if I would like to go back to England with them because they had a, a spot opening for Middlesex at the home of cricket, so Lords of all places, which was amazing for me to even think about. And she sort of suggested that if I um, yeah, took their offer, I could open the batting for them and, and wicket keep as well. So I sort of fast-tracked my university degree, did that really quickly, pushed that all through so that I could jump on a plane and, and head on over to, to the UK and take on my first sort of semi-professional contract as their international player for, for that year. And that was in about 2007 or 2008 or something like that. And it was just such an eye-opening experience. I'd never really spent too much time away from home or anything like that. And I guess I'm, I'm a bit of a bushy. I've, I've come from, from the bush in many different ways from a really tiny country town and my family still have roots and origin back there as well. So to go over to, to, to England where it's absolutely huge and so much going on, on in the tube stations and having to find my way from A to B and this was, you know, without Facebook and all that kind of stuff that was going on back then. Yeah, it was a bit a bit of an eye-opening experience and it sort of grew me up quite quickly. So I spent the next two years there just sort of, yeah, again, grinding my way through. So I performed quite well for Middlesex, um, developed a stronger front foot, foot drive for any of the cricket fans that are listening and things like that. And uh, my performances started to speak for themselves, um, which was really nice for me because I'd taken that plunge to go and live and, and refine my craft overseas. So uh, New South Wales come calling not long after that. That two years was sort of up in, in Middlesex and they said, look, we're ready to, to pick you, come back to Australia and root yourself in Sydney and you can be around our training environments and and would love to see how that goes. So um, with that, I, I took that, that opportunity to come back home and be around my family and my friends again and, um, and to I guess start or continue this dream that had started and it wasn't long before I got home and debuted for New South Wales and started all those things um, and putting started to put all those things into motion when when life changed in a in a very very quick big and and very sudden and dramatic way so um, I ended up breaking my back playing cricket so um, it's not a phrase that you'd, you probably often hear um, cricket being a non-contact sport and all that kind of stuff so what happened is the the disc in my spine came out that quickly that um, the two vertebrae had had nowhere to go um, it was a bit of a freak accident I just sort of yeah twisted to ch- try and chase a ball and all that kind of stuff and part of the bottom vertebrae cracked off from the rest of its body and embedded itself into my spinal cord so there I was at 23, um, immediately had no feeling below my waist, couldn't feel my legs, couldn't move my legs. And not only is it, has this dream of playing cricket just vanished right in front of my eyes and in, in, a, in the snap of a, a finger uh, or the click of the fingers, not only had that dream gone, but my life had just changed in a very big way. I sort of was in this panic state and, and you know, airlifted to the nearest hospital and had all these doctors around me and all that kind of stuff, prodding me up and 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 trying to to get all the tests and all that kind of stuff done, and um, all this sort of fear starts to to creep into your psyche and what on earth has just happened? Am I ever going to walk again? Will I ever feel my legs? Yeah, so that dream ultimately has just absolutely gone in a heartbeat and um, you're suddenly just thinking about all sorts of different things that you never thought that you would have to, certainly as a 23-year-old, that's for sure. So yeah, it was a really sort of tough time in my life for me and my family and all that kind of stuff. And I sort of spent, you know, the next couple of weeks there and I had, had five surgeries, five attempted corrective surgeries on my spine. None of them were successful and 
we really were at a bit of a loss as to what to do next. We really didn't really understand the injuries and all that kind of stuff and had lots of specialists flying in. And we sort of got some some good news in a way where one of my doctors, my treating physicians who'd been with me as an athlete, he sort of had spoken to a lot of different specialists around the world about this injury. And there was one doctor in Australia that did this kind of surgery. So it was called a, a total disc replacement. It's a lot more advanced now. There's a lot more surgeons in this country doing it. But at that point in time, in, in 2010, there was only one um, and he was based in the Gold Coast. So we sort of saw that, I guess, as an opportunity with the scans were sent through to him. He said, I think I can have a crack at this. I think I can try at least um, to try and get some mobility and things like that for Cass, given how young she is and, and the life that she's got ahead of her. So my family and I, we, we took that plunge. We sort of flew me out to the Gold Coast. Dad, come with me. Really supportive family I've got. And um, I land myself in the Gold Coast and we had more scans done and tests and all that kind of stuff and met the surgeon and did all that kind of stuff. And next minute I'm um, I'm in surgery in the Gold Coast. This surgery was a little bit different to the other ones that I'd had prior to, to that experience. So the five that I'd had prior to that, they, they actually cut through your back and like you'd think being a spinal surgery and all those sorts of things. But this one was different in that they accessed the spine through your stomach. So I had to open my stomach up, sort of push my, my vital organs to the side. And so quite a serious surgery. And they accessed the spine through the front. And I think the reason being that I was told at the time was that it, it, it means that you cut through a lot less scar tissue and there's less risk of scar tissue developing around the stomach and the organs and all those sorts of things. So then I guess it's more preventative. So if scar tissue develops in the back, then you're at risk of all sorts of nerve injuries and things like that. So had that and they basically inserted a prosthetic disc into my vertebrae so that I guess they lined the, the vertebrae with titanium reinforcement so that it was corrected and then to allow for that disc space to be back in motion and give it that cushioning that it needed, I was fitted with a prosthetic disc. So just sort of looks like a ball and socket. It's got a little ball in it and then there's sort of a divot in the other end of it. So I come out of that surgery and Part of that is sort of spending the next two weeks in in intensive care and it's a pretty lonely time, I'll, I'll have to admit. Um, you sort of, yeah, lie there flat on your back for two weeks, unable to move, all those sorts of things and lots of head noise starts to creep in. I'd, I'd never suffered any sort of adversity up until this point in my life. I had a really privileged childhood, not, not in that we were really wealthy or anything like that, just had a lot of love. Mum and dad were amazing. I had a great childhood, all that kind of stuff. So this was just really the first significant bump in my life and it wasn't that I didn't know how to cope. It was more that um, I guess the totality of the injury sort of meant that I was facing life in a wheelchair and I, I didn't really know if I'd corrected that or if I was taking steps towards improving um, that prognosis and being told that I'd never walk again and all that kind of stuff. So um, I, I guess I was more worried about that and get, regaining feeling and all that kind of stuff. So it was a day-by-day process. And at the two-week mark in that hospital, I um, I got out of bed with the help of the doctors and the physios and all, all those sorts of people. And with their help, I, I took my first steps. So I couldn't feel anything at this point um, below the waist, but certainly with their help and guidance and moving me in the right direction, I was able to take that first step, which was a really defining moment in my recovery. So I sort of then, again, that that grit that sort of, I guess, allowed me to become the athlete that I was and I was hoping to be um, sort of started to kick in. So the day after that, I took four steps and the day after that, I took eight. And, you know, this journey to, to walking and becoming independent again had sort of started. So I spent the next six weeks there in the Gold Coast um, recovering and 
that was great. And then they said, look, you've healed well enough. You can go back home to Sydney, um, be around your support networks, your family, your friends, your training buddies, your, your teammates, and, and continue your, your rehab from there. So come back to Sydney. That was great. I was around my teammates and all those sorts of people. And at this point, I was walking with the help of, of some crutches and, and special aids and things like that, which was absolutely amazing to be able to sort of do. But I woke up one morning and I thought, something's not right. Um, I'd, I'd been on this really great trajectory with my recovery. And the best way I can explain it is, you know, when you sort of sat down, it could be while you're at work in, in an office environment, or you're watching too much TV on the couch, and your arms are in that bent position, or you're reading a book or whatever it is. And it starts to go a bit numb, because it's bent, and the blood flow is not going through correctly. Um, so you sort of shake it out, and you get the pins and needles and all that kind of stuff, and it, and it amends itself. It was sort of like that. This is about five o'clock in the morning, and I was due to be in rehab, but it was it was in my left leg, not my arms. And so I thought, wow, I must have slept on my, my left leg a little bit funny. I'll try and move it and see if I get that feeling back, or that pins and needly kind of feeling. And sort of tried to move it. It felt really heavy and quite dead and limp. And so I moved it with my hands and it just didn't feel right. Something in the pit of my stomach kept telling me that something wasn't right. And so I waited a couple of minutes and then I flicked on my my bedside table light and I look under the covers of my bed and my entire left leg was just a blue, bruisey kind of colour. And you can imagine all the things that started going through my head. And I I, I just thought, this is not great. I, I don't really know what to do. So understanding how heavy a leg is when you can't move it and when it's quite dead. I I picked it up with my hands and I put it to the side of my bed and I went to try and march myself into the bathroom to get better light and to to use the facility as well. And I just face planted to the floor. Um, I couldn't use it. It was incredibly heavy um, and I had absolutely no control over it. So I crawled myself into the bathroom and that's when reality really started to sink in. I, I realised that I had no idea if I was actually using the bathroom. So um, when I faced into that spinal cord injury and, and, and after overcoming all those injuries, the surgeons and all the specialists always said to me, Kathy, if your bladder or your bowel shuts down or if you have no idea if you're using them, that's actually life-threatening. You need to get straight to an emergency room. And there I was in that situation. So I then started to realise how serious this was. So I crawled myself out of the bathroom, down the corridor. Uh, I had flatmates at the time, um, but I didn't wake up any of them. And because I had a good right leg and it would work, I don't know why I didn't ask for help. This is where stubbornness is not great. But I put myself into my car and I started driving myself um, with my automatic car and good right leg towards what I thought would be rehab. That's where I was supposed to be that morning for for some exercises. And I picked up the phone on the way there, again, sort of really not feeling great about this situation, and I called my doctor, and he picked up at 5.30 in the morning, and I explained the situation to him. I said, look, this is how I woke up this morning. He said, okay, Kath, um, bypass rehab, meet me at RPA Hospital in Sydney. So I said, okay. So I drove myself to RPA, and I parked myself out um, of the emergency ward, and um, I crawled myself into the emergency ward and they sort of all were looking at me and, and, and just sort of said, ma'am, what on earth are you doing? And I said, oh, look, um, this is what the last six week, six months of my life have looked like. I, I broke my back and I've had all these surgeries and this morning I woke up like this. I've lost control of my bladder and bowel. And they pulled me straight into a wheelchair and took me to the, the first consultation room. And it was there that they started, you know, pinning up and measuring and testing and reading um, all these sorts of things in my leg and doing scans on my back and all that kind of stuff. And I really was quite unsure um, what was actually happening to me. I didn't really know. And it was about a half a day's worth of testing later. And they were all sort of gathering outside of my room 
or the, the consultation room that I was in. It had glass all the way around it so I could see out and they could see in. And every time I'd try and look up and lip read what they were talking about or listen in, they'd, they'd look away from me so they couldn't maintain that eye contact. And I thought, I think I'm in strife here. I don't think they're going to deliver much good news to me. And um, I'll never forget it. One doctor walked in and he just simply said to me, Kath, I'm afraid the news is not great. We're going to amputate your leg. I just sat there in complete disbelief and I, I couldn't even think of what question to ask next. Um, but the first thing I thought to do was I just said, can I, can I call someone? Can I call my brother? He's my best friend and he's been my absolute rock throughout my life. And they said, of course, we're actually surprised you haven't yet. So I called him and I said, can you get here as soon as possible? And he said, of course. And so when he arrived there, it wasn't tears or emotion or anything like that. I just sort of, you know, went into a bit more detail and he said, well, can we get the doctors in? And he just sort of knew, I guess, he wasn't the one in shock and the one experiencing everything that was happening to them. And he started to ask more questions. Can you explain this to us? Why is this happening? And they didn't really have too many answers, to tell you the truth. It was sort of this thing where they knew that it wasn't great. And the way that they explained it to us, they said anyone with normal, healthy legs. So depending if they're, you know, sitting, standing, walking, running, crawling, whatever it is that they're doing, they've got a a blood pressure reading anywhere between 90 and 100% and anything below 20% is dire and anything below 10% is dead. And we said, okay, that's a, that's great. Where's, where's Kath's leg sitting at? And they just said, look, it's at 7%. And we said, okay, wow, so it's dead. And they said, yeah, that's why it's sort of turning blue and all that kind of stuff and it's really heavy. And they said, look, it has fluctuated throughout the day depending on what she's doing and all that kind of stuff between 7 and 14%. And I said, well, that's that's got to be some kind of hope that we can hold on to, right? And they said, geez, you're an optimist. And I said, oh, I don't know about that. And it's not that I've got anything against disability or anything like that, but to be told that in that way, in when it was completely unexpected um, and we didn't really know what was happening, I just sort of, I didn't beg, but I sort of asked, I said, is there anything that I could possibly do that could keep this leg attached and in working order? And they said, oh, look, um, for us, we're not really sure. It, it's a blood flow issue, so we think exercise could help. But we really, this, you know, my bladder and bowel started to come back, which was great. But they said, Kath, it's still, you know, we need to prevent your loss of life here. So we need to really get this sorted out. And I said, okay, give me a deadline. And if I can get it above 20%, will that give us something to work with? And they said, yeah, of course. And they said, but if it drops below 10 again, it's gone. I said, yeah, okay, deal. So... I said, okay, Kath, you've got two weeks and you have to be doing this from hospital or rehab. You need to be checked routinely every day, a couple of times a day, that kind of thing. Go your hardest. Exercise could be the thing that, that could save this. And so there I was and the only thing I'd really ever known how to do was to be an athlete. So exercise was something that I certainly wasn't afraid of. So my next two weeks just looked like this. I'd, I'd get up at four o'clock in the morning and I'd have a bit of brekkie and I'd go to the local, uh, sorry, I'd go to the rehab and I'd get it checked and make sure it was at the right reading and all that kind of stuff. And then I'd use their help there, the practitioners and the physios and all that. And then I'd go home and I'd have more brekkie and I'd go to the local gym and I, I got the help of a, a personal trainer in this instance to help me through that. So to paint a picture for everyone, I was using those Canadian crutches, the ones that wrap around your forearm, and I would hop on my right leg, my good leg, and my left one would drag about a half a metre behind me. So all my shoes were worn down and scuffed. Uh, I had absolutely no control over it. It was really confronting for everyone to kind of watch and see. And, yeah, I'd, I'd go back back home, have some lunch, go to the local gym, and anyone who knew my struggle, family, friends, that kind of stuff, that helped me use my leg and get it in the places it needed to be and all that kind of stuff. And 
Then I'd go home and I'd have some dinner and I guess you can imagine the stress of, of facing into a challenge that deep and big. It was it was no sort of small feat and I guess due to the stress and the anxiety of that, I just didn't really sleep throughout that period. So I had a 24-hour access card to the Sydney Cricket Ground, the SCG, where I was a contracted player and I would drive myself there at 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, whatever time of the day it was, and I would go into the gym and it's manned 24 hours a day by a security guard and um, they would notice the lights on at 2 o'clock in the morning and they'd come to check and make sure everything was was okay and they'd see me there with my crutches trying to navigate my way around an elite gym and they'd say, Kath, what on earth are you doing here? It's 2 o'clock in the morning and I explained my, my struggle, my situation to them. And rather than booting me out, because I probably shouldn't have been in there, they helped me. And it was really the first time that I noticed the power of human connection and kindness and what that can do for a person when they really are at that rock bottom place. Bobby, one of the, the elderly guys, would, would literally get electrical tape and he would strap my left leg into a spin bike or a cross trainer and he'd leave me there for 45 minutes to get it moving and, and go back to his post and then come back and unstrap me and put me into the next machine. And it's... Those are the moments I think throughout my story, these these small acts of kindness that meant everything to me, which has sort of inspired what I now do every single day. And we'll get into that a little bit bit later because I'm sure everyone's wondering if I kept this leg attached. So the answer is yes. It, it got to the day before I was due to be amputated. And I don't really remember much about this period. I'm, I'm really relying on my family um, and they tell this story probably better than what I do. But I thought my efforts were were to no avail. So pressure hadn't gone back up above 20. I was, you know, penciled in. I was staying at mum and dad's. I'm going to take me into the surgery to have this, this, this amputation on a Monday. And I went to bed in my old bedroom and must have been feeling pretty crook and woke up at about three o'clock, Dad says, and must have gone to use the bathroom or something like that. I, I collapsed unconsciously onto the floor. The fab that, that that sound made, it actually woke my dad up. He rushed to me, picked me up, put me into the car, took me to the nearest hospital and they did a full body scan and they figured out that I'd been bleeding internally from the surgery where the, the surgeon had cut through my stomach. So what happened is very accidentally and, and no harm intended or anything like that. And the surgeon very slightly nicked the femoral artery that ran into my left leg. Um, I'd lost a lot of weight. So the, the blood that uh, was, was pooling in my stomach and it meant that there was a limited supply of blood traveling around my, my body. And because I had extensive nerve damage from the spinal cord injury, the limited supply of blood simply wouldn't carry into my left leg, which is why it turned blue and all that kind of stuff. So I was then raced off for more emergency surgery and about three or four hours later I come out of that and the first thing I do did was try and feel around to see if my leg was still attached to my body and it, and it was and it still is so that's good news but um, they sort of said to me in that panic-stricken t- state yes mate it is attached but um, the journey's not over it's, it's a long way from over you've still got to keep it healthy so you're not out of the woods there yet it, it, you're still at risk of losing it very much so. And if you ever want the chance at walking again and having a life outside of a wheelchair, then we, we suggest the best course for you is to quit your job and pack up your life and go to rehab full time. So that's what I did. I was there. I was, I was 24 by this point and life looked so different for me. Um, I didn't really know what to do in rehab. Um, I was in this environment of complete unknown. I'd, I'd been surrounded by activity my entire life. And there I am at 24, surrounded by the elderly uh, they had three categories in rehab. There was the over 65s, the over 75s and the over 85s. And there I am at 24. Someone in all of their you know, wisdom put me in the over, over 85s category because that was the only place that had a bed for me. And yeah, it was just, it was a tough experience. I had to make friends with 
all sorts of different people. My best mate was was a woman, well, I called her Daisy. Her name wasn't Daisy, it was Iris. I called her Daisy because she called me Alice. She actually thought I was her granddaughter. Uh, she had dementia and had suffered stroke and things like that. So I just had to learn to ad- adapt to, to my surroundings. I'd take her a cup of tea every day at three o'clock and we'd have our hour together and that became my new norm. But as lovely and jovial as that sounds, it was such a tough experience for me. I, I'll never forget about a week into my stay and it still evokes so much emotion. I, I rang my best friend and had tears streaming down my face and I just said to her, look, mate, you've got to come pick me up. And she said, what do you mean? You're in, you're in rehab. We know that that's for the next six to 12 months at least. And um, I said, I, I don't care if they have to take my leg or cut off my leg, then they can. I, I, I can't do this for the next 12 months. And I'll never forget what she said. I, I think it really it really redefines what kindness is and I think it really highlights the importance of having people in your life who will show up for you in all sorts of situations and, and, and having them have your back when you can't even have it yourself. She simply just said to me, look, I won't, I won't come and pick you up. I'll come visit and I promise you that I'll pick up the phone any hour of the day. I don't care what time it is and I'll walk this journey side by side with you but I'm not going to pick you up because I know that's the place that you need to be the best version of you and and I need you to know that you've got this and I believe in you. And so I hung up that phone call with a new, you know, sense of determination. Learning to walk again when everyone's telling you that you won't is a really tough experience. But I think like all things in life, when you break it down into small bite-sized chunks, it becomes achievable. So you just go from bed to chair, chair to frame, frame to sticks, sticks to stick, and and then you start your steps and, and you go forward that way. But in reality, really tough to grind through it. Yeah, so I, I just commenced that journey and found a place to start and went from there. But my luck changed in a really good way about a month into my stay when I ended up meeting um, a fellow patient. So his name was Jim. He was 25. I was 24. He's a semi-professional athlete. He had injured his spine not playing sport, of all things, it was actually a tough mudder obstacle race. So there we are, two kind of fresh kids on the block surrounded by the elderly. And when he arrived at rehab, I, um, you know, I, I think I was quite attracted to him. But um, also I thought, wow, if there was someone who had, you know, shown me the ropes when I got here, that would have been something that made my journey so much easier. And so I took it upon myself to befriend him and um, and show him the ropes, you know, which doctor to go to when you're feeling low, where to get the good yogurt from, hydro rooms, all that kind of stuff. And very quickly, we ended up falling in love, which is a little bit funny because who finds love in a rehab centre? Uh, I did. It was amazing. And um, I, there's not a thing in this world that I would change for that moment and the moments that we had together in that environment. To go from such a tough experience where we'd both broken our backs and facing very similar challenges of very similar age, mindset, etc., to go through that with someone, it was a really special time, I think, in, in both of our lives. We were like normal young kids in love um, instead of long walks on the beach and doing all that kind of stuff that you do. Uh, we just did wheelchair races in the corridor. So we adapted to our surrounds and we made it, I guess, we made our time bearable because we knew that it wasn't a great time in our lives, but we could also look at that time and go, you know what, we found each other and that's that's quite something that's something to be quite grateful for because had we not have broken our backs, then we don't find each other, fall in love, all that kind of stuff. What made our time bearable and, and the rehab schedule more bearable was, I guess, dreaming of a life that would exist outside of that environment. So when we're better and when we're healthy and all that kind of stuff, let, let's plan for that future. Um, and we had such a good time doing that. So for us, our, our dreams look like, this it'll be um four kids uh three boys and a girl just like my family um not that we had any control over that house in broadwater on the gold coast pet turtles dogs you name it we sort of dreamt it 
And as I said, it just made that confined four white wall environment a little bit more bearable and gave us something to look forward to. So I'll fast track because I know we haven't got all day, but about eight months into my stay, I was doing that well that I was walking with crutches again, which was amazing. And, and again, deemed a real miracle and all that kind of stuff. And I was then considered an outpatient of, of rehab. So basically what that means is I'd visit rehab three mornings a week, get checked up, do the rehab routines, all that kind of stuff. But I could reside back in my home environment, go to work if I wanted to and all that kind of stuff. Jim had a, a, a little bit of a way to go. So he had four months to go on me. So I spent the next four months sort of residing at home and, and working and doing all that kind of stuff while still recovering from rehab and also supporting him in that environment because he had that delayed process. So I um, spent the next four months doing that. And then, yeah, it got to the 13th of November of that year. And um, it was Jim's last day in rehab. So he's going to be discharged the very next day. We just put the lease on a house together. We just all these dreams that we'd been dreaming were about to start the very next day, and we were so excited. And and I guess you could say life was about to start for the both of us, which was just such a magical thing. I, I think I was looking back with so much gratitude um, for actually having broken my back to have met this person who taught me so much more about life and 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 love and all those sorts of things. But yeah, my story in this moment isn't one that ends in in the greatest of ways that night Jim passed away so uh he took his own life it was suicide and just absolutely crushed me I I I lost a a whole lot of myself in that experience so it was such a tough time in my life I don't think I'll ever go through anything as tough as that I didn't really know who to turn to who to be how to be spent the next 10 months just asking myself a whole lot of questions and hitting rock bottom and doing all these sorts of things until I just suffered this complete emotional and mental breakdown uh, 10 months after his passing. You know, first of all, foremost, I lose this ability to play cricket and to lose the ability to play the sport that I'd put so much effort into and all that kind of stuff and then to lose the person that taught me that there was so much more to life than hitting a ball around a goddamn park it crushed me like a ton of bricks and <clears throat> I think time changed for me that day. You know you know when we're having those moments in life as adults or even kids or whoever we are where nothing seems to go right. It could be the dishes in the sink or the traffic on the way to work or the Zoom meetings or the kids that are barking at you or the dogs or whatever it is, those small insignificant moments that really seem to bother us. Um, I was praying for, for those moments to matter again because after going through those experiences and hitting that low point, that rock bottom point, I didn't really feel a thing. Nothing seemed to matter at all to me. I didn't get irritated. I didn't get upset. It was just this complete nothingness and emptiness feeling. And I'm not really sure why I did what I did next, but I'm so glad that I did. I I went to the Gold Coast to really try and figure out my life and I didn't take anyone with me. I just needed to do a whole lot of soul searching. And I was staying in this place and it was a friend of mine and on the coffee table, I don't know why it was there, there was a piece of paper and a pen just sitting on a coffee table and I don't know what compelled me to do it, but I'm so glad it happened. I picked up the pen and I just started writing down a list of names. I just kept popping into my head and they were names of people who had shown up in my life. So family, friends, doctors, physios, those sorts of people. And when I looked at this list, there's about 30 names on it. It was nothing special, just a plain piece of paper with a, with a pen. And I looked at this list of names and I just felt this incredible sense of gratitude and there's so much science about around you know the art um, of gratitude and what it can do for a person and all that kind of stuff but it is so powerful and I, I hope this encourages people to really practice as much gratitude as possible but what I did next is just pick up my phone and 
I just started calling every single one of those people. And the first was my doctor and must have seen my name flash up on the screen. He said, oh, my God, what have you done? What have you broken? How do I help? And I said, no, doc, that's not why I'm calling. I'm, I'm simply just calling to say thanks. And he was quite mind blown, I think, at that. And he said, what, what on earth do you mean? And I said, I, you know, I wouldn't be here without you. I'd probably, yeah, have passed away. I, I certainly wouldn't have my leg attached. And I'm, I just wanted to let you know that I'm really quite grateful for that. And we just sort of sat there going, Kath, in a little bit of disbelief, saying, Kath, you don't have to thank me. This is my job. And I said, well, I want to. And he said, mate, before you hang up the phone, let me tell you something. I'm so glad to hear from you, to know that you're okay and to know that you're going to be okay. And I, I just want you to know that I'm really proud of you. And I said, thanks, Doc. And I just went through this list, you know, with mum and dad and family and friends, and they all had a very similar reaction. They were just so glad to hear that I was okay. And it certainly didn't, you know, save my life or do anything like that, but it really did put me in a better frame of mind to be able to tackle into what my life could be. So just because I was an athlete didn't mean I had to be one. Just because I'd done all these things, didn't, I could really rebuild myself from that rock bottom moment. So I come back home to Sydney and I got thrown a lifeline by Cricket New South Wales. They threw me a job as an operations manager so I could be around their athletes again, which was great. And really just felt quite lost. Like what? why had I at such a young age gone through all these experiences and what did they mean to me? And I was posed a question all the time, you know, if there's one thing that stands out to you, good, bad, ugly, indifferent, we won't judge you, but just tell us what that is. And again, it always came back to this theme of kindness So, um, and how powerful that can be to a person. And, and how I articulate that now is, you know, when you're in a wheelchair like I have been and you can't reach the lift button, for example, and a random stranger walks past and they can see you trying to reach that button. And it means nothing for their day to, to go on, like to take a couple of steps out of their way to press that button for you. And they do that. And it means absolutely nothing to their day, but it means everything to yours because it allows you to do the thing that you needed to do next. And I don't want praise or recognition. Those small acts of kindness actually really stood out to me. So there were so many moments like that one I've just described where people didn't have to do something. They didn't have to smile at me. They didn't have to ask me like my name or conversations or all that kind of stuff, but they simply cared enough to do that. And there was so much power in that, in my opinion. And, and so what I started doing, I guess, realizing that and the power of it as in kindness, I started paying it forward, I guess. So I recognized that people had given me a lot of kindness. And now that I was healthy enough to be able to do that, I would therefore go out and do things for other people. And I started learning lots about different communities and connection and all that kind of stuff. And really at a human basic level, I think all of us are born to connect. And what better way to do that than through kindness, right? So I just started buying, you know, dinner for the homeless. And rather than just shouting them the dinner or throwing them $10 or whatever it was, I'd, I'd actually invite them to sit down and have dinner with me and we'd share stories. And I learned about their struggle and the fact that they probably shouldn't have been on the streets and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, random strangers, I bought their groceries and uh, petrol for a random stranger and all that kind of stuff. And um, I wasn't sharing it on social media, but they had started to. So I then, be no, I then became sort of known, I guess, through this online blog as this person who was giving out kindness. So I umbrellaed that under this idea called Kindness Factory. And it simply started as a way of me paying forward the kindness that I'd received throughout a period of struggle, which was great. And people just started to follow along, which was amazing. And I loved it. And it was really cool for me to be able to do that, which was great. Accidentally, I've, I've broken world records for raising money for charities and all that kind of stuff. It's a story for another day, but I broke a world record for the most amount of burpees in a day. Um, and we had this great day raising close to half a million dollars for another charity and all that kind of stuff. So I was doing all these wonderful things, which was great. But I, I went to, to rehab for a routine checkup and they sort of said to me, Kath, I guess this, uh, yeah, before I go on to that, like this 
message of kindness or this experience of kindness that I was having really was the one thing that allowed me to come back to that word that we use, which is which is purpose. So having a job and doing all that kind of stuff and recovering from the things that I did was great. But really the thing that allowed me to feel like me again was experiencing as in giving and receiving kindness. So Kindness Factory was born on that premise where it was just more like an online blog. And I said, yeah, go back to rehab, have a routine checkup. And they say, look, mate, we're so proud of you emotionally, physically, spiritually, everything. You've come so far. We can discharge you for life. Uh, any questions before we do? And I said, yeah, look, I really miss the competitive nature of sport. So playing cricket was part of who I am. Um, I can't do that anymore because I still can't feel my left leg and I was a batter and all that kind of stuff. But is there anything else that I could do? And I said, oh, okay, um, look, you were really great in the pool and your recovery was based on a, on a bike. Um, if you were to add in a run, you could be a paratriathlete. Is that something that you consider? So I signed up for a half Ironman. Sorry, I signed up for a tester and loved that. And so then got into the endurance nature of it and become the first person with my disability to do a, a half Ironman. So that was great. I did that in 2015 and did so well at that event that I, I was invited to do the, the full Ironman, so the Port Macquarie Ironman in 2016 of May. And um, training's on track, the fittest I've ever been in my life. Kindness Factory's going great. My life's the best it's been after all those experiences that I'd been through. And I'm on a training bike ride with my two best mates. I was living in Cronulla at the time, so south of Sydney. I was riding into Manly. Um, I was going to have breakfast, turn around, come home. It would have been, been about a 90-kilometre trip, so nothing in the grand scheme of, of the training that I was completing. And um, I nearly got to the halfway mark in Manly. I was sort of past the north side of the, the Sydney Harbour Bridge and started aggressing right and I just felt this thud on my body and then everything just went black. I got hit by a drunk driver from behind and I broke my back again. This time in four places I, I shattered my left hip, I, I broke my right wrist and dislocated my neck and yeah woke up a couple of weeks later to the news that um, I was paralysed and, and told that I'd never walk again for the second time in my life. So yeah it was it, it certainly wasn't rock bottom again but it was a a hell of a, a step back um, in this journey that's life, I guess. And, um, yeah, what do you do in that situation? And and I had this overwhelming, it was in the media and all that kind of stuff, and I had this overwhelming support from my family, my friends, from people who were supporting Kindness Factory, from strangers, and they're all sending me flowers and cards and getting in contact on social media and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, one of the most common things people were saying to me was, you know, you've, you've you're such a soldier you've done this once you can do it again and while that was lovely to hear and and their belief was really nice to hear all that I kept thinking was what if I'm tired what if I'm just too tired to do this again because I know how hard it was the first time and I don't I honestly don't know if I've got any the second time to do it again and so I found that belief in in that overwhelming support and through my closest friends who I, I just owe the world to my family and friends have been through everything in life with me and um, have never failed in their support. So um, I spent the next six weeks in ICU recovering and fighting off infection and doing all that kind of stuff and touch and go moments and, and then on to rehab for six months and really tough experience, especially considering all that I went through in rehab the first time and successfully taught myself how to walk again and did all that with the help of the doctors. And again, just had that, you know, why me? Why did this happen to me? It wasn't a poor me. It was just more of a, what has this taught me? What did I learn the first time that I can put to good use this time so that I can just be the best person that I can be? And again, I just come back to kindness. So I was like, if kindness saved me once, why can't it again? And so 
I had this idea that I was talking out with a few buddies of mine and they actually thought I was quite crazy at the time, but it really propelled Kindness Factory to what it is today, which is something I'm so proud of. Um, feeling quite lost and, and even quite vulnerable, I guess, um, after that accident, I, um, I went onto social media and I just put a challenge out there to the world. I said, look, um, here's what's happened to me. This is my life story. I'm going to leave my, my home on this date at this time. And I'm taking nothing but the clothes on my back with me. So no cash, no credit card, no food or water. Um, And I'm not going to accept help off immediate family or friends. So I need the world to show up with kindness for me. So I needed to accept help, I guess, off random strangers. They needed to give me kindness in, in terms of food and accommodation and showers and transport, et cetera. And I didn't know how long I'd go for or what that would look like, but I just wanted to experience kindness in its most vulnerable and raw form. And again, it reached headlines all around the world, which um, blew me away. Um, And it was amazing. But I ended up with 10,000 offers from people all around the world to help me. And I just set off in this journey. I ended up traveling for two months off the goodwill of people. Again, I left with nothing but the clothes on my back and survived for two months. Could have gone, I reckon, closer to a year. But felt quite fulfilled. And what I learned through that experience is that all the people that I guess agreed to, you know, drive me somewhere or put me up in their house or even pay for a, a hotel or, you know, I fed the homeless, I was fed by the homeless. I stayed in boats and tents and five-star accommodation. I, you know, met celebrities and it was just this experience. But what I learned is that adversity is such a relative experience. So in me sharing my story, what that allowed for was a platform for others to do the same and to give kindness as well. So all these people that I was meeting on this journey each had a story that is just as horrific or just as heartbreaking as what mine might be perceived to be as well. And through sharing those experiences, again, I learned so much about human connection and Again, that we're just we're we're hardwired to connect, aren't we? Um, I, you know, and we we often hear that saying that no one's born to hate, and I, I completely agree with that. I think we're all born to connect, and we all want to help each other out. And society or pressures of peers or religion or whatever it is creeps in, and and hate is such a learnt behaviour. So if we can learn to hate, then we can learn to be kind as well. So I come back home and I just had these speaking requests from all around the world. Everyone wanted to hear my story. And so I was travelling the world as a motivational speaker, which I love doing. I still do it. And it's it's fantastic. I get to share my story with people from all ages and abilities and all that kind of stuff, which has been a real privilege for me. But as I was doing that, sort of had that scratch your head moment where I was, you know, getting paid well enough to do it, to live and do all that kind of stuff and quit my job and all that kind of stuff. But really, I didn't pursue kindness to to make money or to do anything like that or to be, you know, well-known or influential. I, I did it because I wanted more kindness in the world. So all these people would often email me or text me or get on social media and they'd, they'd tell me about an act of kindness that they'd been doing because they're inspired by my story. And so I ended up flipping the website, so which was a blog about me and what I was doing and who I was being kind to and with. And I just asked the world to tell me their acts of kindness on this platform at kindnessfactory.com. And so we set a goal to reach a million acts and I didn't think we'd ever get there. And we hit that milestone last year. And just through even that data, and it wasn't a data collecting sort of mission, it was more just we wanted acts of kindness. But we we learnt themes throughout those acts of kindness and the million people around the world that had submitted them. It's now over 2 million and it won't stop anytime soon, which is great. But um, we started to learn themes and I, I quickly quickly realized that if we wanted to see change in the world, that we needed to get in front of kids. And so throughout those acts of kindness and sitting down with 
an incredible team who do our pro bono education platform at Kaplan, um, so Kaplan Australia and Zed through Rob Reagan, um, we're able to develop the kindness curriculum. So what that aims to do is to, um, I guess, teach kids the benefits, but also the basic attributes and principles of what we believe make kindness what it is. So they're things like or themes like trust and empathy and compassion and collaboration and perspective and gratitude and all those sorts of things. And thankfully for me, Kaplan have been absolutely amazing in their support. They've given us curriculum writers um, completely free. Um, We've got academics, researchers, some of the smartest people I've ever met behind this kind of platform, which has been amazing. And so our missions almost become, um, I guess, to inspire a generational change of kindness. So we might not see results tomorrow in these learnings, but certainly in, you know, 10, 12, 18 years time, um, when if kids are growing on those basic principles and foundation of kindness, then maybe they go into a corporate environment or an adult learning environment where they're kinder to one another and the world operates in this ecosystem of kindness. So that's been probably the, 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 the you know, the proudest thing I've done to date is to to get some academia in front of kids because I was going into all these school environments, telling my story to school-aged children and probably, a, you know, a, a mellowed-out version of the one I've just described. And um, it was amazing. Like all these teachers would almost chase me into the car park and they'd say to me, oh, my God, you've just created this incredible legacy. Not once did you mention bullying. It was all about kindness. But I can guarantee you that it's going to help our problem with bullying, for example, or mental ill health and all those sorts of things. And can you leave us with something? And now as I go into school environments, I can. I can leave them with the kindness curriculum, which is completely on online. So it's just thekindnesscurriculum.com. But heartbreakingly, all these teachers, they learned that I was going to going into a school environment for free to share my story. And I had this backlog of about 600 schools. And again, I'm one person. I can't reach them all, all that kind of stuff. And so I thought we've got to get smarter and not work too hard and I can't reach all these schools. But schools would almost ring me in a, in a very critical state and very reactive state and they'd say look we've just lost a student to suicide and I'd I'd obviously drop everything immediately and go to that school to try and support them through that um that challenge with kindness and all that kind of stuff but also then left me quite heartbroken saying well why did it take the loss of a student for you to reach out and to embrace whatever it is kindness that needed embracing in this environment so um, yeah, the, the curriculum, it, it started in 60 schools um, and it's now in close to 3,000 in only a year of operation. So as a charity, that's Kindness Factory's main purpose and it's been a wild ride. And yeah, as I said, it, it's a ride that I'm, I guess my life story or my life is is something that I, I'm actually quite grateful for and, and I'm so proud of not the fact that I just had to endure or overcome, but more so that I was able to take lessons from it and I don't think we need to, you know, punish ourselves or grind ourselves into the ground or anything like that. But as I said, the one thing that has always stood out to me throughout any struggle that I've gone through and and there's been a few, that thing has always been kindness and I'd probably just ask anyone who's listening to to think about that a little bit deeper. So when you've had a bad day or even when you haven't and you've been afforded kindness, what that moment felt like. And I think when you think back to that, you're probably getting a rush of oxytocin already. There's no denying kindness. There's, you know, it really can't be argued with, in my opinion. And I, I just think the world needs a hell of a lot more of it. Um, it. I'm really sick of turning on the TV or going onto social media or whatever platform it is that we're on, podcast, wherever it is. And, and we see so much hate in the world because media tend to want to wanna, to sell that. And 
often as human beings, um, we, we respond to hate with hate. And um, it's not a world that I'm, I'm proud to be a part of when, when you consider it that way. And so hopefully um, Kindness Factory goes on to take steps to, to improving that. And um, I just think it's so important for kids, for adults. There's a famous quote that sort of says that kindness is the, the language that the blind can see and the deaf can hear. And I that really resonates with me because I think it's a feeling, kindness. I, I, it's, not, it's, it's not even an action, in my opinion. It's, it's something that we can all do. Um, it doesn't have to cost us a cent. And it's something that we shouldn't waste time in, in engaging with either, in my opinion. Um, the next time you see a stranger, smile at them. That's as simple as it could be and it could save a life, for example. So, yeah, please, if there's nothing else that you've taken from my story, then let it be that you don't wait um, for that opportunity to be kind or to even receive it as well. Wow. I have no idea what to say after this. This was the most incredible story. Um, and I've done a lot of research, but I didn't know all the details and um, so first thank you for sharing and secondly wow you are such an inspiration and what you're doing is just unbelievable just unbelievable so I'm not going to ask lots of questions because you just covered everything so beautifully I guess the only thing that comes to mind after hearing that and not everyone would have I guess the privilege to hear your story which is a such a I guess difficult story to hear because you just we just feel so much when you of all the challenges but for those people who are I guess experiencing even just a tiny bit of those challenges everything is relative for everyone of course where do they start if they don't even know about kindness is there some way of inspiring people to kind of start that journey I mean, yes, I think kindness and, and, and I've probably just spent the past hour explaining its importance and things. But I get asked this question a lot um, and people hear my story, be it on YouTube or in a speaking environment or whatever, like podcasting or whatever, and they may be in a struggle themselves. And um, the thing that I always sort of say is, again, yes, adversity is, is such a relative experience. So please don't underestimate what it is that, that you're struggling with at the moment because while I'm seen as someone who's overcome many challenges and hurdles and all that kind of stuff and may have even been perceived to have done that successfully, um, sometimes things have rocked me to my core that I probably didn't even mention today that might be perceived to be very much less of an issue or struggle. So things affect all of us in very different ways and in very different moments in our lives. So please don't underestimate that. But for me, I think the most important thing when anyone's in a struggle is to identify what makes them them. And the easiest way to do that is to figure out, if I was to ask anyone, and I do this in big audiences all around the world, and I say, put your hand up if you know what your top five values are. And everyone's values are different because we're all different, and that's what makes the world an incredible place. But could you even could you even tell me right now what your top five values are? And I don't think I've met a person who, when I've, I've posed that question to, could. So if you don't, that that's completely fine. But if not, Take 10 minutes right now to figure out what they are, write them down. And to do that, all you really need to do is go, if there were things that I couldn't live without or I can't imagine my life without these five or 10 things, what are they? And it could be family or health as in exercise or it could be your dog or it it could be friendship. Whatever those things are that sort of translate into a value, figure that out and then tackle the struggle then because what that means is that if you understand your values, so what makes you you, 
you can then understand what's going to give you strength in moments of weakness. So for me, um, getting hit by the car, I'd done so much soul searching and I knew that kindness was something that resonated deeply with me. So that was one of mine, for example. Another one was health. So I wanted to get back on my bike and go swimming and do all those sorts of things. And another one was family and friends um, and connection. And so therefore, all I needed to do to give myself more resilience in that moment was identify what those five things were or 10 things were and go, give me more of that. So give me more kindness, give me more time with my family and friends, give me more time to, you know, rebuild um, what health looks like to me, to get me in a pool and do all those sorts of things and give me more connection with people because that's what I was craving and that's what I needed to fill my bucket. So I hope that sort of answers the question. So while it's kindness for me, it doesn't necessarily mean that it might be for another person. Hopefully it is and hopefully, yeah, you've learnt the power of kindness through this experience. But if that's just, if it just simply means to you, and maybe this is just a a form of of self-kindness, right, that could be a value even. So, yeah, if you're in a struggle and you know that you love patting your dog at night, pat your dog at night um, and then tackle into the struggle or whatever it is. But it's going to look so different to so many different people and and I hope that that answers the question that you've just asked. Yeah, that's a great one. And I I also think that values are really important even in the the everyday life where where you – are, it's much easier to say yes and no to things if you know your values. So so I think like, you know, our lives are so busy that we often say yes to things that we might not value or we might not enjoy, but because we are, you know, worrying about what other people say, etc., or think about them. So I think knowing your values is super important in, in even when you are not struggling. So that was a great answer. I have got so much of your time and I'm incredibly grateful and I don't want to take more time, but I want to ask you the last question that I ask every guest that I have on the podcast. And that is, if you were to give yourself advice, say when you're in in your late teens, knowing what you know now, what would that be? The one thing that I, I probably have always maintained pride in myself for is, is just being authentic. And I think when I was a teenager, I don't know that I struggled with that. I think I've always had some form of authenticity as part of me, but I wish I believed in myself and knew how to be myself when I was a teenager. And I speak to schools, again, all around the world now, and, and it's a common thing, uh, you know, from an adversity standpoint that, that springs out is that bullying is probably the, the number one thing that our youth are faced with. And it contributes to so much um, unnecessary suffering all around the world. The thing I'd like any teenager to know is that being you is the, the best thing that you can ever do. Because imagine if the world existed and all of us were the same and what a boring place that would be to live. The thing that I love most about my friends is that we're all so different and that I can sit around a dinner table with them or my family and I can learn so many different things about all the different people in my life. Um, we don't have to connect on a level that is you know, that we completely agree on everything. And I I think the world is an incredible place because we're all different and because we all dare to be ourselves. So yeah, if I had to give my my younger self or my teenage self any advice, it would be to to really just be me. What a beautiful way of ending this incredible hour. Thank you so very much first for sharing your extraordinary story. And um, I have no doubt that um, my listeners will be so inspired by this story and no doubt support your kindness factory. So we'll link to all that so people can get to your uh, new goal or dream to um, have as much kindness as possible. And um, 
Ah, oh, it's so inspiring, and I'm kind of <laughs> I'm not often lost for words, but this was uh, extraordinary. So, thank you, and we'll um, link up to all the um, things that you're doing to support you. If we can even be a little bit like you in terms of doing kindness, and we all can to support all that you've been through, I'll be very grateful. So, thank you so very much. Ah, uh, it was wonderful to to meet you and to be a part of it. So, thanks for having me. Thank you. Wow. Well, as you heard, Cass' story left me pretty much lost for words. I have met many people in my life who have been through challenges and overcome struggles in their life, but Cass' story of grit, resilience, and embracing kindness and gratitude to get her through her toughest moments is one of the most incredible stories I've ever heard. Like Kath, I'm such a huge believer in the power of simple kind gesture. And as you all know, expressing gratitude is such a big part of my life. Whether that be writing a card to someone, surprising them with a gift, or simply smiling at a stranger. There is no doubt that every little bit of kindness counts, no matter how small. And I hope this episode has inspired you to embrace more kindness in your life every single day. Remember, you really can change your life or someone else's life with the smallest kind gesture. For more inspiration, if you'd like to learn more, we have included links to the Kindness Factory, the Kindness Curriculum and other sites where you can learn more about Kath's wonderful mission and kindness journey in the show notes. If this episode of Kindness has really resonated with you as well, I also think you will love our Grow With Kindness collection available now in our Kiki K stores as well as online at kikik.com. It's full of beautiful stationery, accessories and gifts just perfect for helping us all to embrace a little more kindness in our days. And if you have been inspired to make positive changes in your own life after listening to this episode, I would love you to join my private Facebook group for your Dream Life podcast so you can share and learn with a group of like-minded dreamers. We have so many more inspiring guests just like Kath lined up in the coming months. So please remember to subscribe so you don't miss any. And don't forget to tell us what you thought by leaving us a review. I love hearing from you and I'm so grateful for all the amazing comments. So thank you so much. If you want to see more what's happening in my world, you can always follow me on Instagram at Christina Kiki K. And before I leave, I know we touched on some very sensitive content in this episode. So if anything discussed has raised any issues for you or someone you know, we have included the details for Lifeline, Beyond Blue and other support services in the show notes as well. Until next time, be kind and don't forget to dream big.